Hey, thanks so much for checking out Crossview Church Sermons and listening to this podcast. Every week you can expect a message that strengthens your faith and encourages you in your walk with God. You're about to hear a message from our lead pastor, Chris Dirksen. Leviticus part two, the entire book of Leviticus explained, and by the way, this isn't as epic as it looks. There is a major theme that runs through the entire book of Leviticus, which is going to make sense of all kinds of strange things in the book of Leviticus once we understand it. Before we get into everything, I want to review one thing from last week from part one. I want to remind you of this diagram that I showed you, that one of the big reasons why so many of the laws, there's so many strange laws in the book of Leviticus, laws about letting your sideburns grow for the guys, laws about keeping your, uh, your beard bushy, and other much stranger ones, as we looked at some examples last week. And what we looked at last week, though, is we, is we said, okay, it's not that those things all would have made sense to ancient people. Because remember, the book of Leviticus is being written to people who are living two to 3,000 years ago, all right? So all of these laws would have made sense to them. What God is doing, this doesn't mean, you know, when you read some of these laws, it's not that God likes long sideburns or that God is partial to bushy uh, beards as opposed to groomed beards or whatever, or clean shaven. Uh, it's not that. It's that God is meeting ancient people where they're at, and these laws then point us to eternal truths about God. So what we need to do in the book of Leviticus is we need to dig beneath. What's going on beneath the bushy beards and the weird blood stuff and the eating laws like we're going to look at right now? And what are the eternal truths of God that these laws are pointing to? All right? Because people change. And we looked at this last week. So times have changed over the last two to 3,000 years. And we now have a very different perspective of the world than these people did. And that's why many of these laws don't make sense to us. But God doesn't change. And so if we can get down and find the eternal truths that these ancient, weird, sometimes bizarre and offensive laws are pointing to, then we're going to learn some deep and wonderful and powerful things about God. And that's what we're going to do today. And we're going to start in Leviticus chapter 11, which is a whole long chapter, 47 verses, all about food and not in a good way that will make you hungry, okay? It's all about what you can and cannot eat, all right? And a lot of it is weird, all right? At least to us, our modern eyes, our modern understanding, very weird. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, say to the Israelites, of all the animals that live on land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. All right, I don't want to spend too much time here. We have lots to get into, but here's a picture. Cows, goats, sheep, deer, lots of animals have a split hoof. All right, basically they're walking on two toes. Horses, horses, horse, yeah, horses. Horses, I'm getting that weird. Uh, have a single hoof. I don't know why I'm suddenly struggling with this, but they have a single hoof. You can see it's not divided. They're on one toe, all right? Groundbreaking stuff. All right, let's keep going. And by the way, you go back to this and you go, why would God care? Again, remember the diagram. God's meeting ancient people where they're at, pointing to him. God actually does not care if the food you eat. Otherwise, we shouldn't be eating pig, all right? And he didn't want them eating pig. But anyway, let's keep going. This is where a guy should get, I love this next verse, okay? I love this next verse. 
You'll see why. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof. You must not eat them. Okay. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. Now, I want to do a quick survey here. And usually I don't ask you to actually raise your hands in the air, but I'm going to ask you to raise your hands in the air. If you have ever read the book of Leviticus, just put your hands in the air. Okay. Most of you. Okay, so you're going to get to heaven because you read your Bible. That's how it works, right? You're going to get to heaven and and Jesus is going to go, did you read the book of Leviticus? No. Out. All right? No. Just joking. So you've read this verse then, as so many of us do. We read these verses and we just keep going. Oh, camels don't have divided hoofs. Did you ever go to Wikipedia or go into your backyard if you have a petting zoo and a camel is part of your petting zoo and actually look at a camel's foot? No, you didn't. You read your Bible and you just kept going. Here's a camel's foot. I want you to notice there and here. A camel definitely has a divided foot, a divided hoof. Their foot structure is the same. They are in the same family with cows and sheep and deer and goats. And now, some of you, your faith is just absolutely rocked. Oh, my goodness. What is this saying? And here's drawings just to drive this home. All right, this tells us something, a couple of very profound things about God in the Bible. First of all, this tells us something very profound about God. It tells us that God does not care what you eat. You want to know why? If God actually cared. So remember, I told you at the beginning, a lot of these laws have more to do with ancient people than they do with God. He had to meet them where they were at. And then he's pointing these laws. He's rooting these laws in their ideas of the world. And then he's pointing them at him to the eternal truths. All right? If this was God's idea, if God cared if the thing has a divided hoof or not, he would have corrected Leviticus. He would have said, whoa, hey, camels have divided hooves. Get eating them. Don't put them in the wrong category. This matters to me. The fact that he lets this fly in Leviticus tells us something profound about God. It tells us this isn't a big deal with him. All right? Now, this also tells us something profound about the Bible. But first, hyraxes. And I'm gonna, this is the last time I'm going to do it to you. You're the six o'clock crowd. You are particularly engaged and energetic and intelligent. How many of you have any idea what a hyrax is? Okay, a couple of you actually do. Here's a picture. They're essentially wild guinea pigs living in Africa and the Middle East. All right? And uh, anyway, the hyrax, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. The rabbit... Though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof, it is unclean for you. Now, a little bit more science here for you. I hate to break it to you, but hyraxes and rabbits don't chew the cud. Rabbits do eat their own poop at certain times of the day, which is really disturbing and does make me think twice about eating rabbit, okay? But they don't chew cud. And the commentators think that probably the reason the ancient writer of Leviticus thinks rabbits chew the cud is because of the poop thing. Hyraxes, go look up a video on YouTube after about Hyraxes eating. It's kind of cute. They just constantly chew, 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 and they chew so much that ancient people thought they were chewing the cut, but they don't chew the cut. And you're like, oh my goodness. The writer is putting these rabbits, I mean, putting these animals in the wrong categories. 
God does not care about the food thing. All right? Now, this also tells us something very important about the Bible. And by the way, we're going to redeem all of this because you're going to actually see that there's something way better, way, way better going on in Leviticus than any of this stuff with rabbits and hyraxes. But here's something really important about how we read the Bible. This is what the Bible teaches us about. God and people and right and wrong. That's what the Bible teaches us about. The Bible teaches us what God is like, and we're going to see that at a whole deeper level today through the book of Leviticus. It tells us what people are like and what we need. And it tells us about right and wrong. The Bible does not tell us about science. And this is the kindness of God. Okay, this is the kindness of God. I want to go back to my first diagram. I'm going to have to do a lot of, I should have planned this out. And I didn't. I want you to think about the mercy of God meeting these people where they're at. And then I want you to remember that a hundred years from now, or many years from now, or a thousand years from now, if Jesus hasn't returned, us modern people here, there will be another group of people who are way over here. Do you think we know everything there is to know right now? I wonder how many things right now, like we look back on these ancient people and we go, how could they not know that? And God was kind enough to meet them where they're at. I wonder how many things right now God is meeting us where we're at today. And he's going, oh, brother. They call themselves modern, but it's more like, you know, modern. Compared to God, it's modern Stone Age. Okay? There's all kinds of things we don't know, and he doesn't correct us about those things. He just meets us where we're at. And the important thing is to get to know him, the unchanging truths and love of Jesus Christ. Okay? So... And I could show you verses in, in, in Scripture where the writer of the Old Testament thinks the sky is a hard dome and there's water on top. And all of that made sense in an ancient world. That's totally okay. We're reading the Bible, not for physics and geography. We're reading it to know about God and people. And in this, we see the kindness of God because he meets us where we're at and he's okay with us being dumb. All right? He's okay with us being ignorant. Okay? I'm totally lost. Let's keep going. Oh, by the way, there's one more really cool thing. The Bible teaches us, I made this up, but I might have heard it somewhere else. The Bible teaches us who made the universe. It's not really that groundbreaking. And science studies the universe to see how it works. Does that make sense? You want to know who made the universe? You go to the Bible. You want to know how to design a microwave or what the inside, you know, what biology and classifications, you go to science, okay? Science studies the world that God made. All right, let's go back to Leviticus 11 now. So we have this whole chapter, 47 verses. You can eat this, you can't eat this, you can eat this, you can't eat this, blah, 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 blah. Basically, we can boil the whole long chapter down to this. It's really not the food laws, it's the meat laws. Because one of the things you will not find anywhere in Leviticus 11 is any rules about plants. And you might think, well, so what's the big deal? The big deal is Leviticus has rules about everything. It has rules about how many different kinds of material you can have in your clothing. It has rules about how many different kinds of seed you can plant in your field. It has rules about what you do with the blood of an animal or if you touch a carcass or blah, 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 blah. It has rules about everything. But when it comes to plants, anything goes. If you can grow it, you can eat it. I almost said if you can grow it, you can smoke it. And that is not true. I don't even know why I said that out loud. That was a different spirit and not a good one. Okay, so don't write that down. Okay? If you can grow it, that is definitely not true. If you can grow it, you can eat it. Okay? There are no laws about plants. Now, that's going to be very interesting for where we're going 
when we remember this is all about meat. The dietary laws are all about meat. And the big thing is, what chapter 11 does, is it is, it is greatly restricting the number of animals that the Israelites can eat. Now, why is that important? And first of all, let's just now, we're going to think about this. We're in an area here, I think we can, you know, all of us are at least to some extent probably influenced a bit at, like, by the whole redneck thing. Like, for me, I love to just eat meat. And don't at any point in this message hear me promoting vegetarianism as something you should do, okay? Because I would be a hypocrite. I eat meat. I love meat. And I'll eat any kind of meat, okay? I want to try different kinds of meat. My brother the other day sent me a picture. He was eating bobcat. I'm like, I want to eat me a drumstick of bobcat. Like, I, I don't want to go any further. I'm going to get myself in trouble. But I will eat any kind of animal. I just want to try different animals, all right? But the Israelites in Leviticus... So we like that. You know, squirrel. Someone told me today he's shooting a squirrel and they, you know, barbecued it up. I'm like, wow, that's kind of cool. Um, so we have this idea, particularly in this area, is you shoot it, cook it, eat it. Leviticus 11 gave the Israelites a totally different perspective about meat. It was not this whole shoot it, cook it, eat it. In fact, it basically reduces the kinds of meat you can eat are reduced to essentially what I call the big three, okay? Now, there are some exceptions. If you read through uh, Leviticus 11, it's very interesting. They can't eat pig, but they are allowed to eat grasshoppers and crickets. And I went down that rabbit trail and had to cut it all out because it just I couldn't get back to the message, okay? But it was very fun for me. But basically... It's reduced to the big three, which is the Israelites can eat cow and sheep and goat. Which, by the way, not coincidentally, are the exact three animals they are meant to sacrifice. The cow, the sheep, and the goat. So their primary source of meat, yes, they can eat a few fish, and they can eat locusts and crickets, and you know, if you hunt a deer, but their primary sources of food are going to be these three and restricted to only these three. And the things that they're supposed to sacrifice are also the cow, the sheep, and the goat. And this is important for all kinds of reasons. One kind of really cool reason, which I don't want to get into too much, is that what God wants and what, how we live, that's exactly what God wants. You know, I think some of us as Christians, we want to carve out some other weird thing and give God something else. And God says, no, no, I just want your everyday life stuff. Uh, don't, don't carve out something separate from your life and give it to me. Just give me your life, okay? But anyway, I don't want to spend too much time on that. That would be a fun rabbit trail, not going there. Point is, the Israelites cannot just kill and eat whatever animals they want. But it goes further than that. Not only can the Israelites not just kill and eat whatever animals they want, even the animals they can kill and eat, they cannot just kill whenever and wherever they want. Leviticus makes meat eating way more complicated. And I'm glad we don't obey Leviticus today. Amen? Okay. Any Israelite who sacrifices. Now, the NIV translates this Hebrew word sacrifices. No other major translation does. 
The word is different than the word for sacrifice that is used everywhere else in Leviticus. The word is kill. Okay, that's important. Every commentary, every lexicon, every major translation will tell you the word is kills. For whatever reason, I don't know why the NIV translates the word sacrifice, but I'm going to read it with kills. Any Israelite who kills, slaughters, whatever, an ox, a lamb, or a goat in the camp, so you want to eat, can't eat bacon, but you can have a rack of lamb, you can have some hamburger, okay? So any Israelite who kills an ox, a lamb, or a goat in the camp or outside of it, instead of bringing it to the entrance to the tent of meeting, to present it as an offering to the Lord. Okay, stop. Whoa. So first of all, we get a long list of all the meat we can't eat, and we're basically down to three. Fine. We can live off of cow, sheep, and goat. Now I want to eat a goat. Oh, wait a minute. You can't. You want to eat that goat? You first have to take it from wherever you are. You have to take it to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and you have to have the priest kill it and sacrifice it, and then you can eat it. Now, quick side, you're like, how can you eat something that you've sacrificed? The reason we ask that question is because modern people, we think a sacrifice is when you put the whole animal on the altar and you burn the whole thing. That was actually very rare. Ancient people did not, were not wasteful of animal meat. Most of the sacrifices, including in Leviticus, you're not burning the whole animal. Most sacrifices, actually, that's how they provided meat for the priests and the people offering the sacrifices. Most sacrifices, you only burn, you know, a couple of things, the kidney, the liver. Ugh, it's only good with ketchup anyway, and even then it's not good. And maybe the tail. And then the rest is meat. So the sacrifices is actually where meat for the people of Israel got provided. Okay, that's really important. But now I want you to think about, and think about one other thing, because you're going, man, they're, they're like never eating meat. Well, that's true. Back then, only rich people regularly ate meat anyway. But the other thing is they didn't have freezers. So even a goat, even a goat can give you 40 pounds of meat. Which of you families, so remember, you've got to, you kill that goat, you've got to eat it before it spoils. Which of you families can eat 40 pounds of meat? Okay, awesome. Wow, you guys are impressive. <laughs> um, no, you can't. So you know when you, the only time you basically, regular people were eating meat was when they had a big celebration. There was a big festival, a big holiday. Now you're going to kill an animal, you're going to take it to the tent, you're going to slaughter it, you're going to feed everybody, you're going to have this celebration. Meat was very restricted and it was made even more restricted by some of these laws. And you say, what was the effect of that? Well, one of the effects of that is every time you eat meat, so it's going to be a special occasion, but every time you eat meat, you are bringing God into your special celebration. Because you're starting the celebration by you got to do this whole ordeal of taking your animal to the tent of meeting, getting the priest to kill it before you start to eat it. You're bringing God into all your special events. But that's not even the main thing of what's going on here. There's something else really, really big going on. And I just have to make sure I take the right steps to get there. Let's go to the next verse. Nope. Let's go to the next verse. So, we just read this verse. So you've got to take it to the tent of meeting. Why? In front of the tabernacle of the Lord, that person shall be considered. So if you kill a cow, a sheep, or a goat to eat with your family, and you just kill it at your own tent, and you don't bring the tabernacle, Leviticus says you are guilty of bloodshed. By the way, that's the same word, bloodshed, as it's used for murder of human beings. Whoa. 
So it's like super serious. They have shed blood and must be cut off from their people. So first of all, let's make sure we understand what this is not saying. The writer of Leviticus is not saying that killing an animal is as bad as killing a human being. That's not true. Killing a human being is worse than killing an animal, all right? But the fact that this language is the same shows that the writer of Leviticus and the people of Israel take the killing even of animals. It, think of how precious the life of human beings are when the life of animals is this precious. If you want to kill an animal, you don't do it casually. You bring it to the tabernacle, the priest does it, the value on life in Leviticus is stunning. Now, why? Why is this so serious in Leviticus? Same chapter. Because the life, now the Hebrew word there for life is nefesh. Nefesh literally means soul. So the writer of Leviticus, because the life, the nefesh, the soul, of every creature is its blood. Now, he is not talking here. The writer of Leviticus is not saying, oh, it's like a biological truth. If you don't have blood, you don't live. Well, that's true. He's not talking about this here. The ancient Israelites believed every creature has a soul. This, it's not totally the same as how we moderns would think of, of, of a soul, but it is like something distinct from the physical body that doesn't disintegrate at death, and it belongs to God. Now, by the way, some of you are right away going, your minds are in overdrive. Does my dog have a soul? Does my cat have a soul? And you're right away thinking, is this the answer to the question? Is my dog or cat going to heaven? Okay? And this verse is not speaking to this. Um, in the case of dogs, I'll just take a stab at it. Yes, they're going to heaven. In the case of cats, no. <laughs> um, How could a cat, how, the spawn of Lucifer. But anyway, anyway, um, so, no. Remember, the ancient Israelites, this is not answering that question. Uh, I'm, yeah, I hope dogs are in, in heaven. Great, okay? But this is not answering this question because the ancient Israelites didn't have as developed a concept of heaven as we do today. So they're not thinking of this in relation to heaven and hell and modern evangelical thinking about those things. They're just thinking every creature has a soul, and who owns the soul? God. That is why I have said to the Israelites, you must not eat the blood of any creature, because the life, the nefesh, so this soul, the ancients thought of the soul as being in the blood. Now this is why the book of Leviticus has all these things about you can't drink blood. My, all the surrounding nations, they had rituals where they were drinking blood, eating blood, doing various rituals with blood, Throughout Leviticus, over and over and over and over again, you do not drink the blood, you do not eat the blood, you don't do rituals with blood. And the reason is, here's the thing, life belongs to God. So God says, I'll let you eat meat. It's not a perfect world. By the way, if you read in Genesis, and again, this is not a, me um, um, a message at all about vegetarianism, okay? Um, but if you read in Genesis... I'm, I'm just telling you the theology of the Old Testament. You read Genesis 2 and 3, before there's sin, there's no death, and Adam and Eve were originally created just to eat plants. I've given you every plant of the field. After the flood, God says to Noah, fine, you can also eat meat. It's like a concession for a broken world. It's a concession. 
it wasn't, there wasn't supposed to be death, but now there's death. In order to feed yourselves and nourish yourselves, you're allowed to eat meat, okay? But Leviticus is reminding, every day these rituals are reminding the people of Israel that life belongs to God, even the life of a sheep. Now think of what that does to the value on human life. Every day, these Israelites are reminded, if they want to eat meat, they are reminded that the life of every creature, how much more every human being, belongs to God, and you don't just take life casually. And now, we are finally in place and this is sort of the one screen. If you want to take a picture of a screen, you don't have to. I'm not saying you should. Some people like to take pictures of screens. The four o'clock is really, is really big on that. Um, this is the one screen that encapsulates. I said before, I'm going to try and explain to you the entire book of Leviticus. So here it is. And then I'm going to show you some examples. And then we're going to make this very practical. Here is the major theme, the key that goes underneath everything that's happening in Leviticus that is the logic behind all of the laws. Leviticus and all the laws and the rituals and the sacrifices are all playing out a conflict between the kingdom of life and the kingdom of death. In Leviticus, and of course in reality, God is the source of life. Life comes from God, which means God is also the authority, the owner of life, not human beings. God is the source of life. Now, in Leviticus, the enemy is not Satan, it's death. Now, I'm not saying Satan comes up in other books of the Bible. Leviticus doesn't talk about Satan or demons, by the way. Very interesting. In Leviticus, the problem is death. Death, death, death. And so, all of the laws and the rules and the regulations are playing out this conflict between life and death, and now what is holiness? See, we think of holiness, and particularly when we think of Leviticus, we think of holiness as a bunch of do's and don'ts. God's just a grumpy old man in heaven. He's a bunch of do's and don'ts. I don't like that, so you can't do it. I don't like it when you play with cards that have kings and jacks on them. That's a sin. You just don't do it, okay? And I don't like beer, so you don't drink beer. A lot of people, Christians and non-Christians, think that the law is just a bunch of do's and don'ts. Holiness is not a bunch of do's and don'ts. Holiness is about pe the people of God, the people of life, separating themselves from the world and actions and sphere of death. So now let me show you some examples. This is what holiness is in the book of Leviticus. You ready? Let's, let's see some examples. So, for example, this is why Leviticus is so obsessed with don't touch dead animals. Now, sometimes you can't help it. But look at this. So here's just one example. I can show you many. You will make yourselves unclean by these. Whoever touches their carcasses, so the body of a dead animal, and this is repeated over and over throughout this chapter and elsewhere in Leviticus, will be unclean till evening. So, okay, it's just till evening because there's a time and a place. You, sometimes you just can't get around it. The skunk died in your front yard. Someone's got to touch it. So it's, it's unavoidable. You have to do it. So it's only, you're only unclean till evening. It's not like you get shot or something, okay? But in that ritual, you're unclean to evening. Then you have to do some of these things. You are reminded death is not what the world is supposed to be about. And I am part of the kingdom of life. 
And the kingdom of life separates it from the kingdom of darkness. Whoever picks up one of their carcasses must wash their clothes, and they will be unclean until evening. All of these laws are about separating the realms, the kingdoms of life and of death. This is why yeast, has any of you wondered why yeast is a big thing in the Old Testament? Why can the Israelites not have yeast in their Passover bread? Why on their sacrifices, every grain offering you bring to the Lord must be made without yeast? For you are not to burn any yeast or honey, and that is not the kind of honey you put on your toast, but that's a different message. In a food offering, it's a totally different thing. In a food offering presented to the Lord, okay? But what's the the deal with without yeast, no yeast? Here's the thing that us moderns don't capture is in the ancient world, ancient cultures all around Israel, not just Israel, yeast, and we don't know all the reasons for this. Some of it probably has to do with the fermentation process. Yeast was a common symbol in the ancient world for death. So if yeast is a symbol for death, God says, I am the God of life, and you are a people who are supposed to be holy, who separate themselves out from the kingdom of death. So therefore, offerings and special festivals and holidays when you're eating special bread to the Lord are going to be without yeast. One more example I want to show you now, because last week we talked about the whole menstrual thing, how, and we're going to just tiptoe through this real quick, okay? But I have to show you, because they got these weird laws, they got a whole chapter of laws in Leviticus 15 about women and menstruation, and to our modern minds, it is offensive It is shameful. Why would you treat a woman that way? But once you get that Leviticus is a system of separating life and death, it all makes sense. Let's go go look at this just very quickly. We're going to tiptoe through this one, okay? It won't get any weird or gross. Too badly. When a woman, this is Leviticus 15, which is a whole chapter about this. Yay. When a woman has a regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days. Anyone who touches her will be unclean to evening. Now, Again, modern people, we read this and we go, this is a horrible law that punishes women for something they can't help, that shames them for bodily processes they can't control. And that is all 100% true. And I praise God, we do not live by these laws. But now let's get back into the logic of ancient people and how Leviticus is about life and death. Did you know that all of the ancient Near East cultures before Israel, during Israel, and long after Israel All of them were very superstitious and fearful of menstruation. Very interesting. As modern, go, why? Okay, in fact, I read a quote this morning from an ancient Arab source. Very, just hilarious. Uh, Because these people are very superstitious. They weren't stupid, they were superstitious. If a woman ran into a poisonous snake and was afraid, this, this is literally in the text of this ancient Arab text. Okay, if a woman ran into a poisonous snake and she was afraid the poisonous snake was going to bite her, she was recommended to say, I am a menstruant, or I'm in my menstrual period to the snake in the hopes that this would scare the snakes off because ancient people were scared of it. They're like, what is going on there? They thought you could contract demonic diseases and all kinds of things when a woman was in her period. So they would isolate women all the time, okay? Now again, imagine, so now remember in Leviticus, blood... Shedding blood is a really important thing. So now, a woman has blood coming out. Something death is happening. Okay? This is why there's impurity. 
It's not because God thinks they're bad. It's because these ancient people don't know what to do to that, do with this. But in the ancient logic of separating life and death, this all makes sense. It's not about the woman being bad. It's about the shedding of blood means there's been some kind of death. Something has happened inside of her that is akin to death. And we have to separate ourselves from death. This is, these are all of our reminders because we are the kingdom of life. Right? And this is the kindness of God meeting these people where they are. So now, we finish this sermon. With what on earth does all of this mean for us today? And, I mean, we could say many, many things. I'll, I'll just, I just am picking two. Number one, if Leviticus rides on this whole thing of life versus death, then what we take today as modern people thousands of years later from the book of Leviticus is that if we are God's people as Christians today and God is the source of life, then we are the people of life. And what that means is we represent, first of all, the way of life. I'm not talking about the political cause of life. I'm talking about we represent the way of life. That means in everything we do, in family, in politics, in community, in whatever, in work, in business, we represent the way of life. We try, if we're in business, we try to make money by the way of self-giving love, peacemaking, turning the other cheek, empathy, lamb. By the way, all of these words, I'm not making these up, all of these come from the New Testament and the Gospels and the teaching of Jesus. This is the way of holiness, the way of life. If we pursue politics, if we pursue whatever, we pursue it these ways. The book of Revelation. I heard the lion of Judah, and he turns, and he doesn't see a lion. He sees what a lamb. The rest of Revelation, 22 times. Lamb, 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 lamb. Jesus is a king, and he's a lamb. We are a voice for the powerless. In a world, we are to contrast that uses the way of death, where the way to get what I want is by power, by making people do what I want, by aggression, by revenge, by my rights over others' rights, as a lion, as a voice for my group, as opposed to a voice for the voiceless. In Leviticus, the fact that in Leviticus, animal life is treated like it is. How much more precious and sacred is human life? We represent the way of life. And then I want to take the last four minutes that we have. And I want to just, I want, everything I say in, the last, in these next four minutes is going to be with a question mark. It's not telling people what to do. This is the body of Christ. This is the church community, specifically here at Crossview we wrestle then with, how does this look when we apply this as a group? So many messages. Have you ever noticed this? I do this all the time. But in our Western culture, so many of our messages, I always, and many other pastors, we always try to bring the application to what do you do as an individual when you go home? And that's because we're in an individualistic culture, so we always want the Bible to apply to our individual lives when we go home, which is great, and we should try to apply it to our individual lives when we go home. But the Bible was actually written to groups of people 
and read out loud to those groups of people to direct the life of the community as a whole. So this next piece is an application not for you just to go home and do. This is an application for the community, Crossview and beyond. We work to improve the lives of hurting people in our communities and society so they want to live and can live well. Why would I put it this way? See, a lot of Christians, we have legislation in our country today that we refer to in a short form as MAID, medical assistance in dying. I personally do not agree with medical assistance in dying. I wish we didn't have that option in our hospitals because I think it has, personally, I think it has consequences for the system and people as a whole. But having said that, why would we care more about the legislation than we do about helping people want to live? There are so many things we as Christians could be doing to help people want to live. There are policies we could be voting for. There are investments we could be making. There are things we could be praying. And I don't want us just to be a voice for, I think sometimes people think, oh, you Christians just want people to suffer longer. I do not want to be a voice for keeping people alive in order to keep suffering. Two practical, just two. There are dozens and dozens, probably hundreds. How do we make people want to live? How do we vote and pray and invest in things that make people want to live? Well, one example is, do you know how many people in our province and country live with chronic? Some of you are sitting here right now. Both of these services, there have been people in the services that live with chronic pain. Lots of pain chronically. Do you know that people who live with chronic pain for long enough, many of them at some point end up having desires to die. And yet, to get access to proper pain care, experts in our medical system who are trained to help people deal with pain, it is almost impossible. It takes forever to get to see someone like that. What if we voted and invested and prayed for? We need, instead of just being against stuff, what if we said, we need to be, as Christians, we are behind better pain care and better access to pain care. What about, and I'll just say one more, one more example of a potential positive thing. What about palliative care? Do you know that most, some of you don't even know what palliative care is. That's when you get a separate facility outside of the hospital usually. It's designed totally different. You actually want to be there. It's got like sunlight coming in and plants and all the nurses are trained specifically in end-of-life care and pain management. And people who are dying, they go to a place like this and it's so that it's easier for people to come and visit. It is welcoming. You are cared for in a way that helps you for this stage and we give dignity to death. Do you, most Canadians do not have access. The vast majority of Canadians do not have access to proper palliative care. What if, as Christians, we were praying and talking and having conversations and everybody wasn't thinking about all the stuff we're against? Oh yeah, they're against this and they're against that and they're against this and they're against that. What if they knew the things Christians were for? I'm for, let's spend millions of dollars in this area and all over Manitoba and Canada, proper palliative care and proper pain care. And let's give people 
a real option to actually live so that they want to choose life. And when we work for life, that is the ultimate act of worship to our God who is the source of life and the king of the kingdom of life. That's Leviticus becoming intensely practical for us today. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Father in heaven, thank you that you are the God of life and not the God of death. We want to be people who speak up for the voiceless. We want to be people who do work on behalf of the elderly and the infirm and the powerless to make life better, to bring more dignity. This is what Christians, Lord, we need a whole new facelift of what we're known for in this culture. To be known as a people who walk in the way of life, for life, for the God of life. Thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity to wrestle with big questions in the Crossview family community. Bless everyone here. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast today and being part of what God is doing here at Crossview. A special thanks to those that are giving generously to this ministry. It's because of you, this ministry is possible. If you enjoyed the sermon, why don't you subscribe to the platform you're listening to right now and let us know that you're listening by sharing and tagging us on social media. If you want to learn more about this ministry in our church, you can visit us at crossviewchurch.ca.